Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Martin Pierce and I'm here filling in at the barbecue hop late for Mark Kenny, who this week is on a well-deserved holiday. Democracy Sausage is produced by Policy Forum at the Crawford School of Public Policy and in partnership with the Australian Studies Institute. In July this year, all Australian governments committed to a new national agreement on closing the gap. It replaced and resetted the 2008 Closing the Gap framework. The new agreement includes four key reforms and 16 targets to tackle Indigenous disadvantage. The recent progress report found that only two out of the original seven targets were being met, namely in the area of early education and year 12 attainment. Of the previous agreement, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said, one of the mistakes that has been made is that we've looked at this as a federal government, we've decided what the gap is, we didn't look at the gap through the eyes of Indigenous Australians. He added, that was wrong-headed, that wasn't the way to do it. And as a response, the government launched the new targets with the new plan, which was developed with and being implemented with the support of the Coalition of Peaks, which is a network of 50 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations. In a media release, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, said the gaps we are now seeking to close are the gaps that have been defined by the representatives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. This is as it should be. This creates a shared commitment and a shared responsibility. 
So today on Democracy Sausage, we want to ask, will this new approach lead to better health, social and economic outcomes for Indigenous Australians? And does this recognition of Indigenous leadership represent a step towards genuine reconciliation in this country? So we're joined today by two outstanding researchers and advocates to tackle these questions. First of all, I'd like to introduce Professor Ian Anderson, AO. He is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Student and University Experience here at the Australian National University. And before that, he spent three years leading these negotiations on behalf of the Australian government. And Professor Anderson is a Palawa man from the northwest coast of Tasmania. Hello, Ian. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining Democracy Sausage. And a welcome back to Dr. Virginia Marshall. Virginia is the inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow in the School of Regulation and Global Governance and the Fenner School of Environment and Society, again here at the ANU. And she is a Wiradjuri Niemba woman from New South Wales. Hello, Virginia. Good morning and Yeridu Narin. So thank you both for joining us today. Now, with this new reshaped agreement, for the first time, First Nations people will share decision-making with governments on addressing Indigenous disadvantage. Can you tell us about a little about what this agreement means to you? Perhaps if we start with you, Virginia. Well, I think it's something that we've been waiting for for a very long time. Prior to um, this acknowledgement and recognition of a shared decision-making, uh, we've been wanting to have um, Indigenous control, and this goes to our health, to our wealth, um, being on country. So that shared decision-making is really part and parcel of who we are as Indigenous Australians. And I think this means an opportunity to be heard in a respectful way. Uh, before we were going through many cycles of consultation, but the consultation was actually very shallow. And shared decision-making means you come to the table, you have an equal say, there has to be time to listen and respond, but also uh, it really deals with being heard. And I think that's really important. And it also sits quite well with the voice and the voice meaning that you have that shared space we respect for the first Australians. We were the first and we are the first in the timeline. So I think that that makes sense. What about you, Ian? What does this new agreement mean to you? Okay, so I probably want to make two comments, both about its historical context and secondly about its implications for other other mechanisms for Indigenous engagement. Um, the first is to go back to when the original agreement was formed in 2007-2008. It was an agreement between governments, uh, between the Commonwealth Government and state and territory governments. But to get to that point, there was a social movement. And the social movement, particularly around uh, Close the Gap, was led over over about five or six years prior to that, uh, firstly by Tom Calmer, who was in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, but through a broad coalition of Indigenous and colleagues in non-government, non-Indigenous organisations. And it kind of, I I think that when government then took it as an agreement between governments, they lost a really key bit of the social momentum for change. And I think that's particularly pivotal because the broad closing the gap Framework is really a social is is a services reform agreement, uh, and in in essence, what 
in making an agreement between governments, they were excluding the very large indigenous services sector. So this, this agreement brings the indigenous services sector, represented by the community control organisations, uh, into sharing decision-making that reform priorities and priorities uh, for reform. I, I think this does have uh, implications um, for other processes afoot, uh, particularly around the formation of the voice. Now, the voice is a very different proposition. It's very important to recognise that. It is a proposition around constitutionally enshrining uh, a mechanism um, for Indigenous Australians to have a voice to the Australian government. This is uh, the closing the cap agreement is in the old parlance a COAG agreement or a national cabinet agreement, whereas the voice is quite a different proposition. But I think the most important thing for it is that it shows that uh, Indigenous Australians and governments can come to agreement, can go through the hard negotiations and form a joint view. So it's, it's I think, very promising to show away that you can actually do this. You, 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 can, you can negotiate, you can negotiate in good faith, and you can get an outcome. Now, you were involved in the negotiations for this agreement. Can you tell us a little about that experience? So uh, over three years, there were kind of a number of things that were really important in setting out on that negotiation journey. Uh, one was to build a more scientific approach to setting targets uh, using data and evidence. Uh, the second was to try and uh, to work in a way that kind of build a strength-based narrative for uh, the broad agreement. And the third was to do that in uh, with Indigenous Australians, working with Indigenous Australians. Now, we didn't get to the working with until probably to, uh, halfway through the agreement. The first half was done in a very traditional uh, engagement consultative exercise. It was pretty cons- pretty extensive uh, consultation. I think that by that by the halfway point, we had engaged with uh, nearly one and a half thousand uh, individuals over over the over the continental landmass, and was getting very consistent feedback about the priorities. But uh, then, about the halfway point, um, the Aboriginal community controlled sector formed a coalition. Um, and that was quite important. It meant we governments couldn't negotiate through a single mechanism rather than through multiple structures, uh, and then put a pitch to first the Prime Minister and then, then to other state and territory ministers, uh, essentially saying that we, we don't want to be consultant, we want to be negotiators. So that's quite a pivotal shift, and that really characterised the second half of the agreement making process. So, uh, in that second half, we retested all the priority areas and target areas. And the coalition of the peaks really pushed a quite a significantly firm line around reform and reform system reform. So they, in the end, agreed to system reform uh, uh, along four lines, um, shared decision making, um, uh, strengthening the role of the Aboriginal community-controlled sector, uh, uh, data, and and sharing use of data and Indigenous evaluation, Indigenous-led evaluation processes, and finally, um, the reform of mainstream systems. So uh, the, the 
the, the, the negotiations were quite different in the first two phases. One was uh, uh, um, an argument between government, and the second, the second phase was uh, less argument between government, but actually uh, working with uh, the coalition of peaks. Uh, so they were quite different dynamics um, and a really kind of interesting and, I think, informative um, negotiation. So let's get into unpacking the agreement a little. The National Agreement on Closing the Gap includes four key reforms, 16 targets, and new accountability mechanisms. And that replaces the agreement, as you said, from 2008. New targets cover a wide range of issues from health to education to housing to land rights and the protection of Indigenous languages. Can you tell us a little about what's significant about this new agreement? I think that the kind of the reform framework is probably pretty significant, and, and as you alluded to and as I described earlier, I think it is a broader set of targets. They, they do cover the areas of unacceptable disadvantage, incarceration, child protection, but they also cover a range of areas where if we do better on it, we will actually put future generations of Indigenous Australians in a better space, so early childhood development, schooling, retention to year 12, uh, participation in, in tertiary education, all, all those factors are, are fundamental to driving prevention and intergenerational change and I, I think that the other elements the, the kind of the, the kind of this is more observational with uh, indigenous non-government partners around the table you get a fundamentally different approach to accountability a standard intergovernmental agreement it's the accountability between governments Commonwealth and state that's where the argument is uh, with a third party in this agreement is about the accountability of governments to Indigenous Australians. And I think that really pivots the accountability framework. Virginia, two of the previous plan's seven targets were health-related. The first was to close the gap on Indigenous life expectancy, and the second goal was to halve the child mortality rate. And 12 years on, those targets were not on track. The 2020 progress report showed the gap in life expectancy between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people was still 8.6 years for men and 7.8 years for women. And Indigenous child mortality remained double that of non-Indigenous children. Why was the previous agreement so ineffective in addressing that type of disadvantage for Indigenous Australians? Well, I think it's overwhelming uh, in the disadvantage that Indigenous Australians really experience every day. Um, we know with COVID-19 there's been particular vulnerabilities that have played out um, across uh, Australia and with civil society. So when we actually come back and we understand that disadvantage for Indigenous Australians has been um, uh, really put in the back closet uh, for many uh, Australians and Australian governments for many years. And I think that uh, the most important thing to to remember is that we've had a, an extensive report by the Auditor-General in 2019 that really pointed out the failures, not only in uh, the approach of government, but as Ian uh, quite rightly pointed out, was the, the lack of shared decision-making. When we do have Indigenous peoples on a board, 
um, in the cabinet uh, if we have them across large organisations uh, such as BHP and 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 health organisations, we're going to make a difference and we're going to really have a conversation that you will not have when Indigenous Australians are not at that table or, or not being listened to. And, and participation and also negotiation, uh, which Ian uh, drew also, is very important in this whole picture. So the Auditor General's report in my reading, it means that we really were um, separate to any of the discussions on how our lives would move forward, on how to deal with incarceration. And the the removal of Aboriginal children and Torres Strait Islander children across Australia is unacceptable. And even though we have the conventions, we have the rights of a child, we have um, women's rights protected under the convention, we have the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, that hasn't taken effect, that hasn't been incorporated in this country. Um, it's been incorporated as a statutory legislation in BC Canada, for example. Uh, but we're so um, slow to take that up. But it's promising that the reading of um, what's happening now in that shared decision-making space with Indigenous peoples, that um, something like UNDRIP can then in time and probably I would, I hope in a short time uh, would be incorporated to protect those rights. And, and I think it's very important that um, for many years, um, 20 years ago, it was shunned by some sectors of government to actually incorporate international law. But until we have human rights um, and and rights of Indigenous peoples being heard and incorporated um, into our legislation, into the fabric of civil society in Australia, um, we will we won't um, uh, increase the opportunities for Indigenous Australia. Now, of course, policy failures in this area don't have an abstract impact. They cost Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lives and livelihoods. Virginia, how do you think these past failures, some of which we've talked about already, reflect on Australia's political system and policymaking apparatus? Well, I think one thing that I'm I'm particularly interested in, and I've also been a practising lawyer in that space uh, as pro bono for Indigenous medicines, for example, Um, in that space alone, uh, there is very little research and development funding for Indigenous people to stand on their own two feet. And, and to have a business and also to have control over their um, plants, uh, biodiversity, and medicines that can really help the world. Um, so I find in that space, um, Aboriginal people uh, really need the support of government. Um, and, and having that control of your life and, and true self-determination to um, progress uh, research, progress businesses in those areas and bush foods is an enormous opportunity. And uh, we can see that improving our lives as Indigenous peoples also means eating the foods from our country, um, uh, the Indigenous foods, and also using Indigenous medicines, which many peoples uh, in different communities are using today. Um, uh, They haven't patented these particular medicines. Um, They're used quite broadly to help people, to to heal people. And I think um, the message for us is well-being. So supporting research and development in these areas uh, really makes a big difference to Aboriginal people's health. And I'd like to see that discussion enter into the Closing the Gap 
I don't think we really have drawn on these really important issues. And as we know, science is finding so many species um, that really uh, provide good health and and provide cures. Uh, and Aboriginal people need to be front and centre of that discussion and also involved in, in that area of their lives. Ian, what about you? What do you think that these past failures, what do you think they, they reflect on Australia's political system and policymaking apparatus? I, I think that there are, it kind of reflects some broad challenges around the ca- capability in the public sector response uh, to Indigenous Australia about how do you actually uh, find a path forward that's uh, informed by evidence, that's worked through with Indigenous Australians as partners, either in organisations or through other other decision making uh, mechanisms. I'd make that as a kind of broad statement. My, my second point would be that, in addition to understanding policy failure, we also need to have a lens that enables us to under, uh, also appreciate and understand uh, policy success. Uh, the, and this is what we learn when we take a more strength-based approach to Indigenous policy. Uh, so we do see success in it, particularly in uh, the trends in early childhood devel- uh, development, uh, educational trends, particularly in participation to uh, Year 12 and and the growing numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians who are um, coming into higher education, into the higher education system. And we need to understand why that's, why, why and what's driving that success. And then I think um, more, more generally try to figure out ways to build on uh, some of the assets that are, that are in the Indigenous world. The Indigenous world is not the same world it was in the 1970s and 1960s when Virginia and I were young. I'm assuming that she's roughly my age. Um, uh, that... Uh, and, and there are there are many there are many deep assets in the Aboriginal world. Um, uh, so um, native title and land rights means that, for example, particularly in the north, that Indigenous Australians have some for, form of title over forty percent of the northern landmass, forty forty and upwards. Um, we have a generation of of people who have had a chance to. Um, go to university, build their professional capabilities. There are doctors, nurses, lawyers, um, architects, and and so on. Uh, we have a significant uh, indigenous uh, services sector, the community controlled sector, but we also have an emerging indigenous business sector, and that's that's growing through policies such as the Commonwealth Procurement uh, Policy. And so, I think I think the challenges for us is. How do we capitalise on those assets? Um, stop, stop building policy that assumes that there's nothing of value in the Indigenous world, but build policy that builds on assets, that leverages success and enables us to then tra- tackle those really tr- tricky problems. And there are no, there, notwithstanding all of us said that you know incarceration, child protection are deep, tr- difficult, wicked problems that we've yet to make succeeding success on, but we can do more if we take a different frame. Well, I think I think Ian's correct in one way. It, it is a wicked problem, but on the other side, we have to have solutions. 
Um, a wicked problem is one that we we really don't know how to solve, um, but we do have solutions, and that strength-based approach, which Ian's talking about, comes from the people itself, comes from Indigenous Australia and, and the survival of Indigenous Australia. I mean, myself, for example, I had four years of high school. Um, I didn't feel very wanted when I was in high school. I didn't um, really appreciate much more than art and languages. I think that's what I really enjoyed the most. Um, but, you know, I just didn't fit in that space and I worked um, from the time I, I left school and it was just um, something you didn't think about as going to university and you didn't think about being in lectures or giving lectures or deciding um, to write your PhD thesis. So I think that it's great that um, young Indigenous peoples can actually imagine that space, um, even if they come as a, a welder or a carpenter or a mechanic, they can say, well, actually, university's got something to offer for me. And and that's why I think, and Ian's pointed out these issues, we need to really um, provide all of those incredible creative opportunities and for them to see beyond what they've been stereotyped to believe is their lot, um, is their future. And I think for me the possibilities were provided by a number of really terrific people and, and they were academics. Um, and, and I think that we need to inspire people. When I go and practice at court, for example, in the Downing Centre in Sydney, I can see that um, there's no Indigenous judge, for example. Um, there's very, very few um, Aboriginal solicitors that you can see at the bench, and uh, I, I see very few people that go into private practice and, like myself, open my own firm in 2013. So, I mean, that is a rarity. And what I'd like to see is that that becomes common, that it's, it's, it's something like the advancement of women. We don't really have to talk about that anymore because we have equal merit and equal pay. Um, that would be amazing. So for the same job. So I think that we need to have that really strong feeling to mentor. And I think that's what Ian has done over his lifetime. And, and it's certainly one that I really believe in is mentoring. And there's so much value in that because somebody can trigger, well, yeah, that triggers my imagination. That triggers my ability to think that I can do these things. I can be a doctor. I can be a lawyer. Um, I, ca I can be a, a terrific um, audio engineer, for example, or a presenter. Um, so I think that that's what we need to keep live in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities is that belief uh, that you are greater than what people really stereotype you to be. Well, I think you would be a terrific presenter. You'd be welcome to take up the seat from me anytime you wanted, Virginia. <laughs> Thank I mean, you. It, it, you both talked there about a number of concerns and things that you'd like to see happen. Does the new agreement seek to address those? Do you think the new agreement puts us on the right track to, towards tackling some of those things? So I, I had a, a close involvement in the development of the agreement. I think that uh, it provides a really good platform for driving change, uh, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Um, I, I think that um, Indigenous economic development is a powerful change, change driver that governments really only indirectly have control on, so they can make it possible to, for Indigenous economy to flourish, but that is something which has got to come in part from within the Indigenous world, I think. The same too, I'd say, for cultural renewal and cultural 
development. That is something that has to be led from within the Indigenous world. Uh, and the agreement doesn't do that. It, it provides some of the, the framing for that. And then I think the, the broader uh, process led for constitutional reform and the development of a voice to parliament is a critical uh, a strategy that I think is a fundamental part of the jigsaw. So I, I think all these things are key parts of jigsaws are not 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 one element alone solves the problem. We need a multifaceted approach, but the new agreement is one part of that. Well, I think that there's a, a good inclusion, and, and because I also practice in the native title area, I think that um, the inclusion of a native title in this whole process of the framework is really positive um, because closing the gap must include water rights, it must include land rights. Um, the only thing is that it's concentrated on traditional owners only, and it also um, really concentrates on how many determinations, uh, whether they're exclusive or non-exclusive, will be decided for Indigenous Australia. So that's uh, a bit of a question mark for me on, at, at the end of the day, um, how much control will Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have over sea country, for example. Um, we've seen in the um, Bight of South Australia, there was a, a huge... Um, furor about uh, taking gas out of um, uh, taking oil out of I'm sorry uh, out of the the bite and that's uh, a, a very um, cultural issue and a very deep and um, meaningful issue for uh, Aboriginal people in that area uh, where they have rights over sea country uh, but their rights aren't listened to so I'm just really hoping that um, those conversations will be really in the future um, in these areas but it also won't only concentrate on traditional owners this agreement will concentrate on stolen generations and people who are off country um, they're on uh, and living on other people's lands and they can also be heard uh, and they also um, have recognition for looking after country and um, they, they're incorporated and their views are incorporated because there's only as Ian pointed out there's a, an in incredible landmass that's there but there's also um, a lot of those parts of the jigsaw that are missing that Indigenous peoples don't really get to share. They don't get to have their country um, and their rights and exclusive rights. So um, that's one thing that I really will be watching in the future and encouraging. And and also, you know, if you've got a roof over your head and you can do what you really want to do with your land and your water, um, it's it's a, a, a really amazing experience. You can really feel like you're living the life and living the dream and, and that's what Indigenous people want to do. They want to go back and just feel part of that earth and part of that water and, and be revived in their spirit and it's just an incredible journey for identity. So who could really argue with that? Well, that sounds like a great place to take a break. But join us for more because when we come back, I want to dig into a little more about how the policy will work in practice. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I'm still here with Virginia and Ian. And as I flagged just before we went into the break there, I'm interested in how the policy will work in practice. Of course, the new agreement has to be backed up by institutional and financial support from government. And after the announcement of the new agreement, the former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, hid out at the current government uh, for failing to put enough money on the table. Writing in early August, he said, the announcement that the Commonwealth would allocate $45 million over four years is just a very bad joke. This is barely 10% of what the Liberals cut from our national closing the gap strategy. Now, Australia has officially entered recession with uh, national GDP slipping by a record 7% in the second quarter of this year. And given the country's financial position, is there a concern that budgetary pressures mean that there might not be enough funding or to match the political will to adequately support this plan, meaning it could get kicked down the road yet again? So um, that's a real risk. Um, I think I'd, I'd make a comment that the the landscape when you know, Mr. Rudd, and he did leave, was a kind of a, a significant reform in COAG, and I don't want to take anything away from it, but it was pre-GFC, so it was a completely different uh, financial context. And I'd also make the point, too, that that agreement-making occurred over an 18-month period. It didn't start with the money. It started with agreement around the targets. So I think that, that I want to... Uh, give some space for governments to consider its its fiscal response to, to the agreement. It is a very different context. And then I, I think that probably the other observation I would make is that there, um, uh, there, there are better ways that government can spend its current investment, uh, particularly around support for those ground-level community-led uh, initiatives. So... Uh, one of the things that I would expect governments to do is look at how it spends its its current resources, use the lens of the new agreement and ask the question, is there a better way to, to deliver change? Is there more, is there a better way to get money on the ground for those community-led services such as the community-controlled sector? 
I mean, we do live in a very different time in terms of government spending, even from the time that this agreement was actually negotiated. Virginia, do you think that given that everything has happened in terms of the, you know, the, the national debt that we've run up in terms of tackling the coronavirus crisis, that the government is prepared to put its money where its mouth is to properly support this plan? Well, I think I, I also um, agree with Ian. There's a whole range of issues that have changed. Um, everybody in the world knows how their lives have been turned inside out by COVID-19. No vaccine, um, the vaccines that were offered, um, we're, we're probably a little bit tentative about. So, yes, we are in precarious times, but that means that we actually have to do much more for people who are vulnerable and, and, and experience disadvantage. And we've seen prior to when COVID hit um, really our lives in, in a big way, that um, there was a, a big reluctance by the Australian federal government to increase um, Centrelink benefits. And it was only a small amount of money that we were seeking. Uh, but, you know, the Australian government was pushing back saying that they had no money. So I think what we've got to do is remember that, um, you know, we've had JobKeeper and JobSeeker and we've got all of these other different uh, derivations of them. Um, so there was money there to make a difference to people's lives. And I, I've lived on Centrelink before I started in tertiary um, studies with four kids. I lived 17 years in domestic violence. And, and I know, you know, um, foregoing your food and your lunch or your dinner so you can actually feed your kids. So I think that, you know, I, I look at that and I say, well, the government still has to push forward and say we have to do more. So when times are more difficult, the government can't pull away and say, well, we don't have enough money. You know, I watched um, the the budget uh, with um, Josh Frydenberg the other night on Tuesday night and I couldn't believe that there was very little for Indigenous people to get excited about. Um, uh, there was uh, a mention of uh, Aboriginal money going towards uh, an education institution but really looking through the budget papers, there wasn't much for Indigenous Australians, the first Australians. And as Ian and I have both said, you know, have shocking statistics in closing the gap. And yes, we're hopeful. And yes, we don't want to talk with deficit language, but we have to be realists. Um, if you're sitting in the chair and somebody's saying, well, I'm sorry, I've got to tell you as your treating doctor, this is really what's happening with you. Um, well, we need to say to the government, well, even though we're going through COVID and we've got more than a uh, trillion dollars in, in debt, we need to really um, make sure that our most vulnerable are going to be looked after. And and that's really the reality. And, and all Australians just say, well, well what, are you, what are they doing for Indigenous Australia? You know, are we going to just wait again until times are improved and we've got a growth um, that we're going into surplus um, in in maybe three, four, five years, ten years down the track, we're not sure. So do we wait um, and just allow people to die and, and raise money for dialysis machines um, to to um, have uh, impoverished lives and no hope? And, 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 you know, it's just all of these um, shocking things that you sort of think about um, and, and the possibilities that can happen after COVID and just us being more defeatist. I think we really have to be um, thinking about new opportunities but supporting people who really need that support and that's Indigenous Australia. Like you say, it was a big spending 
budget. There was a lot of money flowing out the door uh, from from government, but there was very little in there for Indigenous Australia. Do you does that make you concerned about the government's commitment to this agreement? Well, I think it's like a marriage. Um, you know, you're, you're hopeful that your vows are going to be honoured, and and I think that that's probably what um, Ian and I would love to think that those vows will be honoured. And that goes to closing the gap and to all the other possibilities that are out there. But at the end of the day, um, who is prioritised? And I think that's what we're seeing in reality. And it certainly wasn't Indigenous Australia. And, and you know, the reply speech, to be quite even-handed um, by the Labor government, um, didn't really have anything either for Indigenous Australia, which um, was surprising. And the only last comment was that we are going to o- o- really acknowledge um, constitutional recognition uh, through the voice. And that was the last comment at the end of the speech. And I thought, well, that's what we're used to being an appendage, uh, and I think to history. And we really need to know that we we are going to be on everybody's um, mind when it comes to these times, as are other Australians who are suffering and losing jobs and will lose jobs and will lose houses and um, children will start and, and really move back home. And, you know, we, it won't be just a new normal. It will be um, uh, a diaspora. It will, it will be chaos. It'll be postmodernism. Um, uh, it'll be everything that we hadn't imagined, but we have to be prepared and we have to work together. And and I think that um, we haven't been part of that picture this week, and I think we need to. I think they really need to rethink how they're going to actually uh, work with us, like Ian and I have both stressed, in shared decision-making. Uh, we don't want to, people to tell us what to do. We need to make our own minds up and really discuss things as adults, and that's what the situation calls for. Ian, there has been criticism of some of the targets, particularly around incarceration rates and for not being ambitious enough. Do you think these targets push policymakers hard enough to tackle the some of the issues that we've talked about today? Yeah, um, I think that's uh, probably a fair call, but I would have to say that at the moment rates are going up. So... The kind of, um, unfortunately, there is a longer, more intergenerational approach needed in the intercarceration space, uh, as in child protection. The, they, you, the, this is not something that will be fixed in 30 years. Absolutely. Um, based on our best kind of understanding of the drivers, one, one of the key drivers actually to incarceration is, um, child development. Um, so you do better in child development. Over time, and this is how we'll have a generational flow, incarceration rates will go down as, as will child protection. Um, but the, the challenge for that negotiation is that I think, um, the Australian government doesn't have a lot of levers in the incarceration system. That is something that's run, uh, through state governments. And I would have imagined I wasn't at that part of the, the tail point of the negotiation where that, um, would have been settled is that the state governments would have been very nervous about. And I think that with all the targets, there was a genuine uh, genuine desire to push change, but also not set up future uh, over the next 10 years, um, a, a kind of reporting cycle of failure. So you, you've got to get the balance between building the political momentum 
and uh, getting the balance around the best known evidence about how change will happen, uh, in the end, it's a judgment. So the, the life expectancy target that was set in 2008 was never going to be achieved. Those who understand life expectancy as a measure and the drivers of life expectancy were providing that advice at that time. And the consequence now is that we've got year on, year out, kind of an off-track target. The, the key driver, um, life expectancy will change and the mortality rates are changing, but it's not yet pe- being picked up in the measure. So there's, uh, in, and kind of, um, I, I think that one of the challenges here is that when you use targets in public policy, you use them to actually drive change, but they then, this public discourse gets fixated on the targets. Are they on track? Are they off track? And no one's actually looking at the trends underneath that. And I think the trends tell a more meaningful uh, story, uh, both positive and negative. Yeah. So moving on slightly, this year the Black Lives Matters movement has really captured global attention and it's shone a light on issues like incarceration and police violence, especially in the US towards African Americans. Do you think this movement also signals a growing understanding of injustice towards people of colour around the world, including that which is experienced by Indigenous Australians? Or or is white Australia still not facing up to its history? Well, the reply is yes. Um, I think truth-telling is one of the really powerful um, explanations of why a lot of these issues that we're talking about today have occurred. Um, there's been a lack of respect, there a lack of interest um, in really valuing the senior knowledge holders and valuing um, the ability to um, really understand Indigenous peoples and 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 really, it's Black Lives Matter has always in in some form or another um, really been a call to arms by Aboriginal people since 1788. All of those early diaries from What Contench, from David Collins, for example, they were speaking about kidnapping um, Aboriginal peoples to observe them. So there's early research for you. Um, and there's also been a, a, a whole period of time where Aboriginal peoples have, have really pointed out to governments, you know, even those colonial governments, uh, and also some of the churches at that time of, of the shocking treatment of uh, Aboriginal peoples. And there was uh, a, a um, committee meeting in England in the 1830s, I think it was 1837, and and they were really pointing out that the the murder and the treatment of Aboriginal peoples was unacceptable. Um, so we've known for a long time. We've had our Black Lives Black Black Lives Matters um, uh, in Australia for a very long time, for a couple of hundred years. So I think that the the shocking details of George Floyd, and I think we all felt that moment where we could see um, him losing his breath. And, and then people around the world wearing face masks, I can't breathe. Um, that's happened to Aboriginal people where um, they've actually been um, assaulted by officers where they couldn't breathe and they passed away, or passed away. So I think that we have to really understand that this is a movement that we really can't let go of. We have to say, as you said, uh, for African-American, for people of colour, um, we can't stop the protest just because of COVID. Um, there are other ways that we can pro- protest that are, are safe and safe for everybody. 
Um, we certainly don't want to go down to a, um, an American campaign level where people aren't uh, COVID safe and, and they're not in a space where they can um, uh, really protect themselves. So, But there is a protesting um, with safety that we can do, but we can't let go of this movement because I think it's really important that um, every person counts. We don't want to have uh, more than 400 people die in custody. Um, and, and, and it is an issue and we need to deal with it and we need to really focus this as, as one of our aims too, is to change the way we do things. But truth-telling on all of the country towns that exist in Australia, of all of the, the history that um, Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islander peoples have experienced from blackbirding um, to be um, really working slaves in the, in the marine industry in the Torres Strait and also um, uh, across different lands in, in uh, mainland. Australia. So we need to have hope and hope is really that other um, people who aren't Indigenous will stand with us and really make a difference. Ian, in your work at ANU, you work on strategic initiatives that promote equity and reconciliation. How can institutions like universities, including ANU, of course, play their part in the context of this agreement? Um, There's a very clear role for them in the agreement. There is a target for tertiary education, uh, unlike the earlier agreement. So they absolutely uh, need to address things in order to realise that target. Um, the, 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 there are a couple of key things for, for universities, and I'll just focus on, uh, on universities. Uh, indigenous participation is growing in the university sector. Uh, we need to monitor whether that continues to grow in light of both COVID-19 and, and the, the most recent federal budget. We need to monitor that carefully. But we also need to address the significant lag in completion rates for Indigenous students. So um, it's good that we're getting more Indigenous students into university, but we've got to graduate them more at the same rate as their non-Indigenous colleagues. And that's really uh, incumbent on us to look at the kind of academic and, and social and other uh, supports that we provide them in the university community, as well as trying to ensure that the jobs they land after university are, are the best jobs possible. So the, and that, that's a social capital issue about, you know, you, you don't come into a university if you're a, uh, an amateur kid, if you're a country kid or you're a kid from a, uh, a, a low SES background, with the same networks that other kids come from more privileged areas. Uh, the second thing that we've got to um, really focus on is building the kind of workforce that's required to deliver the service reforms that are that are aligned in the agreement. Do we have the the teachers, the educators, uh, the doctors, the nurses, both uh, indigenous? professionals, but also ensuring that non-Indigenous professionals are, are fully equipped where they can uh, to make provide a high-quality, um, excellent service to Indigenous Australians. And then finally, I think the, the kind of third plank is that we need to think through the kind of um, what, what the reform elements of the new agreement uh, um, require in terms of uh, Indigenous-led data management and Indigenous-led evaluation. We, we need to look at how universities can contribute through 
particularly through um, a research high degree training to an Indigenous workforce in these areas, but also in data analysis and more particularly in evaluation methods. So there's quite, I think, some much more clearer, more significant uh, expectations on, on Australian universities in this new agreement than there had been previously. Now, we are coming to the end of today's discussion, uh, but before I let you go, I would like to put a question to both of you, which is, how will we know that we are making genuine progress on the reforms and targets outlined in this agreement beyond those indicators that we have talked about? And and secondly, what do you hope that progress actually looks like? Perhaps, Ian, if we start with you. The data will be important, um, and that's the reason why you um, build a kind of a measurement framework around uh, these agreements. But I, I think that um, equally important is some some of the evaluation work that that will be led by the coalition of peaks around the uh, around the actual agreement itself. Does the agreement live up to that shared decision making ideal that was set out? Uh, so that there's there are kind of uh, more qualitative approaches to to looking at is the agreement working? Is uh, in, are Indigenous Australians fully in that fully involved in decision making within the context of the agreement? And then I think probably an, another issue that I'd be keeping an eye on is is just the annual uh, close the gap in the national parliament. Are Indigenous Australians there alongside the PM talking about uh, the progress that they've made over the last 12 months and what they'd like to do over the next 12 months, or are they outside the parliament holding a separate rally on uh, closing the gap? What about you, Virginia? What is it that you will be keeping an eye on in terms of identifying whether progress has, has been made and what's your wish for what that progress looks like? Well, I, I would definitely say when we don't hear reporting about the increased rates in uh, youth suicide, we don't hear increased um, rates of mental health and no support, um, incarceration levels fall drastically low, um, also that there are no um, or very few wards of the state um, and the removal of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. Um, all of these different news items, policing, for example, you know, that that Aboriginal people certainly um, are not up there being incarcerated and, and waiting in remand. Um, so there's a whole range of different issues um, that I'll be listening to on the news and reading reports like Ian. Um, that's really important that it is evidence-based, but also listening to the news um, and the media and reading and, and being across all of the different areas that of health and wealth, um, uh, business development, I think seeing exactly and hearing exactly how Indigenous Australia is faring uh, would be fantastic, that uh, we don't have to listen to this deficit um, discourse. We just really listen to um, incredibly lived, good lives um, where it's not uh, are you going to be an Indigenous doctor, are you going to be an Indigenous barrister, but, uh, you know, it's just being a human being. And I think that's really important that we transcend race, um, that we can still be Indigenous people. We hold on to our identity and our cultural um, fabric of what makes us strong. But 
we don't have to point out our points of difference. And I think that will be something that I would certainly wait for. And I hope I would live a very long life to see that. That would be wonderful. Well, let's hope this agreement is a significant step forward in addressing some of those challenges. So thank you both very much for your time today. Thank you, Virginia. And thank you, Ian. Mandangugu. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what we've talked about today. You can reach us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum. That's A-P-P-S Policy Forum. Or better yet, join the Pod Squad on Facebook. We're Policy Forum Pod there, and we're looking forward to you joining the conversation. We'll be back with you on Monday with another episode of Democracy Sausage. But until then, cheerio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.